A few weeks after I became chief executive of the Confederation, I went for a drink with an old friend and I talked about the challenges of the job. He said, you know, there's someone you should talk to. She only lives up the road. So a few days later, I found myself walking across Tooting Common. There was someone who gave me immediately such fascinating insights about the health service, such different ways of thinking about the challenges that we face, and particularly from the perspective of patients and communities, that ever since then, whenever I've wanted a new insight, I've always turned to her. Today, I'm going to share some of those insights with all of you in Health on the Line. New ideas. Big debates. Meeting the changemakers. Transforming services. I'm Matthew Taylor, and this is Health on the Line, brought to you by the NHS Confederation. So I'm delighted to be joined by that person who walked with me on Tooting Common and gave me that advice and continues to give me great advice. That's Charlotte Augst, who's the Chief Executive of National Voices. Hi, Charlotte. Hi, Matthew. Lovely to speak to you today. First question, uh, I know a bit about National Voices. It's a great organisation. But for somebody who's never heard of of, of what it is you do, tell us about National Voices. We are the coalition of health and care charities in England. They're the very large ones you will have all heard of. Cancer Research UK, Alzheimer's Society, Diabetes UK, you know, all those. Um, and then lots you might have heard of if you have a rarer illness or maybe love someone who has a rarer illness. And then also increasingly because we took all our engagement online during the pandemic, we also um, have attracted members who are more locally based um, and focusing much on sort of inequalities issues, inclusion health, because we've made quite a lot of noise about that. The thing I think that means we're quite, we had an interesting knot in the network of, of health and care organisations is that I think we're both very close to the grassroots in that the organisations who are members of National Voices work very directly with people who've got substantial health and care needs Um, and they know better than almost anyone what those people want and need but we're also very much at the top table in many discussions. We're very much, you know, in all the programme boards and transformation groups and project programme, you know, all that stuff the NHS sets up um, to reform itself. We're in those conversations. And and I think that sort of gives us an interesting um, opportunity to take the insight from the grassroots to the rooms where decisions are being made. It's challenging doing that and doing justice to both those cultures, I think. But it's, I feel it's something really worthwhile doing. And what would you say, what's your, what's your kind of mission? We're trying to make healthcare more democratic, more human and more equal. There may be some people who'd say, well, that, that is the National Health Service. It is democratic, it is human, it is egalitarian. Why, in a sense, do you need an organisation like National Voices? Well, there's lots of reasons, really, but... You know, one of them is that health is created and maintained, but also undermined and challenged often outside of health services. And health and care charities straddle those places. You know, they look after people and work with people who live with Alzheimer's or severe mental ill health or endometriosis, both inside their health service use, but also very much outside. So it has a much more life rather than service perspective, my, my sector, which I think is, is one that 
the NHS very desperately needs. But I'm always struck with how clever and committed and good the people are you meet in all these decision-making rooms inside the NHS um, and how many of them there are. I mean, how many senior leaders kind of health system carry? I mean, you know, hundreds and hundreds. But we produce these very unequal outcomes between all of us. And also, quite apart from the inequality, which is obviously a moral outrage, we produce quite poor experiences for people. We produce avoidably poor public health outcomes. Um, and you know, if you do a little bit of system thinking, one of the mantras of that is every system is perfectly designed to produce the outcomes it produces. It's obviously not to do with the lack of commitment or intelligence of system leaders. It's something isn't working in the way we've configured all of this, that it is still quite a rare thing for people to use health services and say, from the receptionist to the pharmacist to the GP to the specialist, people knew about me. I did not have to repeat myself. What mattered to me mattered to them. As I transitioned from one part of the sector to another part of the sector, what mattered to me was still relevant. It was still known to people. I mean, that does happen. I don't want to say that doesn't happen, but it isn't the norm, is it? Most. I mean, there's a whole genre, a journalistic genre of people like us writing blogs and comment pieces about how we understand the health system really well, but only now that our mum has fallen over do we realise how it doesn't work. So I think this is quite a very common experience that people, even people who are as smart and empowered as we are, find it really quite hard to make the system work for ourselves or our loved ones. So uh, listening to that, Charlotte, it, it, it could almost be a kind of preface to the integration white paper in the sense of well this is the problem this is the world we want to move from and this is why we're in this white paper are advocating joining up of services sharing of data devolving power to place level etc and yet whilst when one reads that integration white paper and i'm sure you like i was involved in in conversations about it should we have more hope this time that 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 some of these lessons are being learned I don't feel terribly hopeful when I read the latest iteration of the centre's attempts to push the point on integration. I think it's really quite telling that we have a bill worming its way through Parliament which has the explicit and stated aim to integrate health and care, NHS and local authority services, and some in places or systems or patches or whatever you want to call it. And then we kind of overtake this process through the publication of of another white paper. I can't think of another example where you would do that. I mean, maybe paradoxically, the thing that gives me hope in that is that maybe the people who are tasked with making the change happen on the ground realize that they're on their own. that the help won't come from there and that they just need to, in a way, listen harder to what their local stakeholders are saying, what their local system partners are saying, what their people and communities are saying, because that hasn't changed just because there's another white paper and just because there's another bill and just because we now call the STPs ICSs and we need to create an ICP and an ICB and all that stuff. And you just need to actually listen to the 
very consistent narrative that you will pick up if you listen to your local signals. So, so I want to move to this kind of question of what are the principles and the culture that ought to be underpinning health and care practice. But but before we do that, because I don't want us to be in entirely kind of gloomy territory, what, what does good practice look like then? Charlotte, you just talked about you've seen great leadership. Give us a sense of, of when it feels right from your perspective. I think good practice involves a degree of humility. There is an unbelievable prowess and wealth of resource in the modern medical model. Just think about the vaccination program. The it you know, my mind boggles when I think about how clever that all was, you know, to get to that vaccination so quickly and then to build the infrastructure to get it out to people and to put tents in car parks and to build an IT system that captures on which day I had which dose from which vial. I mean, that is just, it's just genius, isn't it? But the, the clever leaders of that system realised it's not enough. The NHS isn't enough, it can't do it alone, and that it needs to really invest in partnerships. And where we manage to push the vaccination into communities much deeper and much wider, that's what happened. And that super impressive technological skill that was involved in getting the vaccination program to that point was then complemented with the authenticity and depth of relationships that can only exist in places and that are different and that are personal and that is sort of something a lot of people say but I think the leaders who do it and who do it well they realize that this is a non-trivial challenge and that you need to treat it like any other non-trivial challenge and you need to give it some resource and you need to give it some time and the volunteer who drove the minibus from the mosque to the vaccination center was very cheap but that didn't happen for free and with the vaccination program we did put a bit of money behind all of that but it sort of treated that as a non-trivial problem how are we going to get this to people who live with severe mental ill health how are we going to get this to people who don't speak english as a first language i i think charlotte this is this is such a powerful point and and, and actually yesterday i was at a, a seminar on the health disparities white paper and one of the things i noticed in that was there was this kind of flipping and flopping between we need a big national initiative on smoking or hypertension or obesity and big national targets and person after person saying, well, hold on, you have to engage the community. You have to recognize the specificity of place. And and I think, Charlotte, I mean, I, I, it's strange. It is in a way an obvious point, but the way you've made it is so powerful that the real learning from the vaccine program is that you can do both at once. You could have your big national mission, which is to get the country vaccinated and beat COVID, but you can recognize that actually the way in which you do that has to be one which involves reaching out, listening, empowering, and 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 and, and strategies which are suited to local circumstance. That that's that's the core of it, isn't it? Yeah, and and I am actually, you know, because I agree with you, we don't want to just be gloomy about all of this. I'm actually quite hopeful that on some parts of the inequalities agenda, we seem to have, we seem to find ways of combining those strengths. Like I'm thinking about the core 20 plus 5 way of framing 
inequalities and and what we're going to do about them. And we have raised some questions about this program and, you know, it could always be improved and we hope to, you know, get into a stronger dialogue around some of it as a sector. But this idea that you don't treat the inequalities piece anymore as a problem of the little inequalities team, you know, the three young bright things who report to the CEO and you sit outside the CEO's office and who write papers about inequality. And you say, this is now a problem for our cancer director, for our maternity director, for our cardiovascular director. And this is now a problem for the programs that our trust runs, that where we spend the millions. And this is a data problem for you, and this is an improvement problem for you, and we want to see some results. I think that's quite a clever move. Um, because it locates the inequalities question at the core of the activity of of healthcare providers and commissioners and then you will find if you look at your cancer statistics in your trust that minority ethnic and poorer people have their cancer diagnosed far later than white and middle class people and in order to do something about that you need to go out to those communities so i think that sort of lens that improvement lens and starting with a challenge to the core of the system and not just, you know, the little strategy team, but then realizing that in order to fix it, you need to patch together a whole number of small solutions. I think that could potentially actually take us quite far. And so one element of this, Charlotte, is just making sure that in the room, in the governance room, in the policy making room, in the strategizing room, there are people who actually understand how this feels, how being a recipient of care feels. And that takes us to this notion of experts by experience or lived experience. And I know you're doing a lot of work in this. It seems to me there's a kind of slight danger that this becomes a kind of tick box, you know, we must have someone who's got lived experience. And as long as we've ticked that box, everything's going to be fine. So tell me, what's the strengths of of having experts by experience? And, and what are the things we need to avoid if we're not going to just turn this into something that feels a bit tokenistic? I mean, I should probably start by saying that the people who are leading health and care services have themselves got experiences of using health and care. And so it is kind of interesting that that doesn't come through more strongly in how they approach their work and I think there's something about this notion we have of professionalism that reduces the resources we draw on as people in ourselves in making decisions and I think it's kind of quite telling that sometimes when you look at a health and care leader and you think gosh they're a little bit different they sound like a human being they seem to bring their heart into work you then learn when you get to know them a bit better that they're not just casual users of health and care services they are someone they love has a substantial health problem or a disability and this is something that has shaped them as people very profoundly and I think that that should give us pause for thought but I agree with you it's very easy to do this work um in a, in a tokenistic way. And I think we've lost a lot of goodwill by doing this work badly. And I don't just blame the formal health and care system for that, because I think sometimes we as the voluntary and community sector, we've been complicit in 
just the box ticking kind of engagement exercises. I think what we need to do is we need to find a more intelligent way of bringing into dialogue learned and lived experience. You know, because I don't want my cancer surgery to be conducted by someone with lived experience of cancer. I want it to be conducted by someone with learned experience of how to conduct surgery. So, you know, in healthcare, more than in other public services, I think it's very obvious that we need the leadership of, of learned experience as well as leadership of lived experience. So one thing we are trying to do, and we've we've had funding from the Health Foundation to think that through in a very systematic and sustained way, for which we are grateful, because that's not often how my sector is able to work really try something, really go through a design process, really test, really dismiss, really start again. So, you know, that's the luxury you get when you when you have a progressive funder by your side. Um, and we come up with this idea that we want to um, bring learned and lived experience leaders into a thinking partnership, recognizing that system change is actually really hard to do and that, you know, when you try to do something about, I don't know, delayed discharge or unplanned admissions, these really thorny, thorny problems, a little workshop isn't going to hack it, is it? You know. So what could be done to keep the person in charge of a transformation program focused on the task at hand, which is to change the experience of actually using services? And so we have trained our first cohort of people with lived experience of both ill health and health inequality. And we've taught them um, coaching skills. And we are now partnering them up with system leaders for them to start a coaching conversation where the system leader can really choose what is the problem they want to think through. And the coaching partner, the person with the lived experience, tries to help them think consistently from the perspective of a service user. I am really hopeful that this intervention might sort of do justice to the complexity of actually leading change. Um, and we are still very much in a learning mode on this, but um, I'm hoping that it will not feel tokenistic and it might ripple through change in a way that actually makes a difference. You've talked about transformation Charlotte, and, and and in a sense, this kind of the need for kind of continuous input from service users. But you're also, you know, a, a very kind of deep, sharp policy thinker. Where do you think are the areas of the health service that do need kind of capital T transformation? There really needs to be fundamental change. I suspect that primary care might be one of those. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I'm always a little bit scared of that transformation term because I I just do wonder whether that kind of makes people tap into unhelpful concepts of heroic leadership and magic and crossing your fingers and hoping for the best. Um, I think improvement is often a more useful framing, um, measuring outcomes, deciding which one you're going to tackle, trying something and measuring what happens once you've tried it, you know, those improvement cycles. It sounds a bit pedestrian, but I do think it is probably very, it's actually quite profound because it keeps you engaged with the outcomes. Whereas I think 
the transformation framing often means you spend all your cleverness, all your very, very considerable intellectual resource on dreaming up a model, and then you just sort of throw it over the fence and then kind of move on to the next thing. But Charlotte, I'm just going to interrupt for a second because I I want to suggest it's a false dichotomy in the sense that I often talk about split-screen thinking. And what I mean by split-screen thinking is, is that you have a vision of where you want to get to and the decisions you have to make next the improvement decisions, as it were, or simply the reactive decisions are at least informed by some notion of where you ultimately want to get. So if you take primary care, you need an ultimate vision of primary care, which for me is about primary care in terms of it leading population health management. So fundamentally, the transformation is a shift away from the idea that, that, as it were, people sit in general practice and wait to see who comes through the door to a, a, a world where primary care has a deep understanding of the needs of its population, a deep engagement with its population, and it's proactively developing strategies which prevent ill health uh, and prevent inequality. Uh, um, Now, that shift, that transformation from a a system driven by demand to a system that goes out proactively manages population health, that's that's the big T transformation. But then the decision about, well, what do we do about the next thing? What do we do about, I don't know, the GP contract? Or what do we do about um, delay discharge or whatever it might be? It, it is at least informed by that vision. Isn't that right? That's a, a really helpful sort of discipline that, that I certainly try to engage with my team on. It's like, okay, then where do we want to be in three or five or ten years' time? And what can we do right now that doesn't at least make that less likely to happen? Um, it's, I think in primary care, it's quite hard to do that well because I think it is so obvious that some of the things that really need to happen are really big things and they need to happen quick. Like we need to really invest in workforce. We need to really invest in buildings we need to do these things that our current government are quite unlikely to make happen. So I think we get a bit blocked then. And then we have these sort of skirmishes instead about, um, you know, what's the percentage of face-to-face versus online consultations and what's the right percentage, which strikes me as a as a skirmish that's not very helpful for the kind of, for decisions as to what primary care needs to look like. I I agree with you that the future of primary care needs to be much more concerned with the health of people rather than health service use. I don't like the language of population health management. It sounds to me like you are, it sounds to me quite sort of 20th century, like you're people being pushed around some map by some army generals. Um, It just sort of feels a bit... Yeah, it feels very like you're doing too. You know, on the right-hand side of my split screen, I see primary healthcare services that support people, particularly those with living with long-term ill health and disability, to live as well as they can. So there's a very strong focus on support and self-management. There's a real recognition that 99.9% of diabetes care happens in the home 
um, by people who have no formal medical training that the vast majority of dementia care happens in the home, supported by carers who are often themselves not very well or old and often not often don't work and have very little money. So you kind of start with recognizing who does the healthcare and you take that as a design principle for what then needs to happen. So you build health services that are much more um, about improving the ability people have to do the right thing for their health and and supporting the community to hold each other's needs to an extent. And then you kind of build permeable structures around and into that, that also take seriously the insight that no one out there using primary care services understands the distinction between primary care, community care, social care, pharmacy. This is all the same for people already. You know, the public are 25 years ahead on this integration agenda. The fact that a carer comes in the morning and in the afternoon, they think the GP has sent that carer. You know, this is all the same from a person's perspective. You take that seriously and you say, well, why are we insisting these are all different systems? Why are we insisting these are all different funding pots? But I think you sort of build outwards from where people are at rather than saying, okay, who needs to sit on which board, which seems to be the way we try to constantly do this. Charlotte, one of the things that's happened a few times in my life is is a moment when I just suddenly look at an issue from a different angle in a way that's terribly liberating. And I I, I want to kind of end our conversation by by offering a suggestion that, that we might want to do this. But let, let me just explain what I mean with another example. So I remember... One of the things about working for Tony Blair in the early days of, of New Labour was that from the kind of perspective of the left, my attitude had always been that the pe- people were basically wrong about the world and, the, and the, the task of the left was to get people to stop being wrong about the world and to persuade them to think about the world in the, in the right way, which in an improved way. And the great thing about Blair, whatever you think of Blair, is that Blair's view of the British people was that they were right. You know, they were right to want to pay less taxes. They were right to worry about crime or whatever it was. Your job was to tell them that that we had the best way of responding to their genuine, legitimate and reasonable views. Now, it, it probably doesn't reflect very well on me, but that was a kind of enormous moment of liberation. I stopped thinking I've got to change what people think and thought, oh, hang on, I've got to respond to what people think and persuade them that Labour has the answer. Now, I, I want to suggest a similar kind of paradigmatic kind of shift, which is that we have thought of the health service, the fundamental problem of the health service from day one as being this, that there is too much demand and not enough capacity. And that therefore the whole of the health service in some ways is defined around that problematic, which means an enormous amount of time and energy is spent gatekeeping and rationing, basically. And that that sucks out a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of goodwill. It's one of the reasons people find the engagement with the system so unsatisfying. But, But what if we were to kind of somehow move away from that? What if we were to say, actually, maybe that's not quite right. Maybe if we could think of the health and care system as almost an open access system and actually what we would say is the fundamental problem is 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 not is not that there's too much demand and not enough capacity but the problem is if you empowered everybody and supported everybody 
they would make the, a demand that we could fulfill. But the problem would be that because society is very unequal, those people with the greatest assets would get the most and those people with the fewer assets would get the least. So actually, our problem is not gatekeeping and rationing. It's actually about how do we have a much more preventative, personalized, empowering health service, but do it in a way that doesn't exacerbate inequalities. One of the things I would say in response is the current system we've got with the gatekeeping, despite it being all about objectively assessing the need and so on and so on, leads to hideously unequal outcomes. So that's where our conversation started. So the fact that your mental ill health and your endometriosis pain and your dementia are not at least formally, at least explicitly assessed by how loud you shout, but you know, how serious your need is, which is assessed by a serious medical expert, um, doesn't do away with the fact that the people who shout louder get through and the people who don't, don't. Um, so the, the current system doesn't work in terms of equalizing outcomes. And I know that this is something that particularly primary care colleagues feel very invested in, that this is their role to ensure that scarce healthcare resources given to the people who need it the most. And, I, you know, I don't want to poo-poo that. That's a very noble ambition. And, and clearly, our health system is doing better on that than some other health systems. So, you know, it's not like this has no effect, but I just don't think it has entirely the desired effect because the system makes itself so difficult to use that you have to actually be very empowered and very good at self-advocating to get through the dysfunctionality of the system. Um, but also, I think there is something... Maybe just, you know, to end on a very personal note, but uh, many people know, I know everybody, obviously, but many people know that my husband David had cancer and died of it. And so I have over the years spent lots of money on psychological help for the children. But at one point I was actually, my daughter was being helped by actual formal services and they kicked in when David was still just about alive. And she had, my daughter had, I don't know, four sessions. And so then the person looking after her started a conversation with her about how she mustn't become dependent on this and how we needed to bring this to an end between David dying and his funeral. And I just, I mean, I do remember the red rage descending when this was relayed to me, but I just sort of felt like, where have we got this notion from about... Um, Overdependence on services, and and the hospice where David died, Trinity Hospice in Clapham. I remember when David died, and I picked up the death certificate, and I was given his stuff. They said to me, "Any time, any time, you or your children need our help, you can reach us. There is a forever offer to support you with this." And I used it ever, I used it maybe for a few counselling sessions and my son has used it for one series of counselling, but between us we've used, I don't know, maybe eight conversations with the hospice. So, you know, an open-ended offer was made, no gatekeeping, and we've used it very sparingly. Now, we are obviously, you know, privileged and we have, we can buy ourselves support when we need it, but I just found the the approach to what is possible so profoundly different. And you can imagine what makes people 
you know, at the moment of very, very deep distress feel held and what doesn't. And I just think, you know, a different future is possible around this. So I think that's so powerful, Charlotte. And, and it reminds me of a conversation I had a few weeks ago with the Bristol Dementia Service. Now, you know, again, it's a well-run service. I think it's pretty well resourced. But having seen people go through dementia and the terrible kind of process whereby you you wait until it's obvious there's a problem, you get a diagnosis, you're kind of sent away Well, you, you know, see how long you can cope. And then you get to the stage where you can't cope. Okay, you get a kind of new diagnosis, you get some care. You cope with that care at home. You then get finally to the stage where the person who's got the condition can't cope anymore. You go back into the system and then you get a kind of residential placement. Each time you go back, you start again. The Bristol Dementia Service, once you've got the diagnosis, they say this service is here for life. It, it will go with you on the journey. You won't have to come in and out each time. So I, I think this... It, it, however, people listening might think this is unbelievably unrealistic, but I think if we start to imagine services that hold people in the way that you describe, what you might find is that they empower people in terms of self-care in ways that are profoundly different from the way in which services work at the moment. Look, Charlotte, I, I could talk to you for hours and hours, and in fact, I do talk to you for hours and hours, uh, and I will talk to you again for hours and hours very soon, but we have limits on health on the line. Um, we look forward uh, at the Confederation to continuing to work with you on National Voices. You, you, you are an incredible source of, of wisdom. Charlotte, thanks so much for spending time with us. Thank you for this. Thanks, Matthew. You've been listening to Health on the Line from the NHS Confederation. Visit nhsconfed.org for more information about us and to register for events and webinars that delve deeper into the issues explored in this podcast. And save the date for NHS Confed Expo, the premier event in the health and care calendar, taking place on the 15th and 16th of June 2022 in Liverpool.